North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, naturopathic doctor. You guys know me. And thank you so much for joining me again for another wonderful show. I'm really excited about tonight's topic. It's something I've wanted to highlight for a really long time on the show. And I just didn't really know of someone I thought would be, you know, worth interviewing. So I had to kind of ask around, and I found someone I think would be a really great guest to talk about healthy babies and kids. And I know a lot of you moms and dads are tuning in, and probably a lot of you folks out there who are wanting to have some kids at some point. So welcome, and welcome to all the new listeners. Really, really excited for this topic. And, you know, kids are are the most unhealthy they've ever been in our country. I mean, obesity is on the rise. You know, childhood obesity has more than doubled in children and tripled in adolescents in the past 30 years. You know, things like autism, ADHD is just skyrocketing, and there's just so much that naturopathic medicine can offer for these types of conditions and just preventing all of these things from setting in. So really excited about tonight's show. Before we introduce the guests, I'd like to give you some announcements. So, um, well, one thing that's really cool is I just got word. I'm going to be presenting at Paleo FX next month in Austin. I'll be lecturing and super excited. So if you guys haven't checked out the Paleo FX conference in Austin, check it out, therealpaleofx.com. And there's a really cool lineup. There's Chris Kresser, Rob Wolf, Nora Gidgaudis, and lots, lots more. So check out the lineup. It'll be really fun. It'll be great to meet a lot of you guys who listen every week. Um, let's see here. What else? Oh, next week's show, I'm going to be interviewing, actually, the repeat guests, um, Dr. Jason Calton and Mira Calton, they just released a brand new book called Rich Food, Poor Food. And the book is really, really interesting. It's actually a guide to how, how to really shop smart in the grocery store. You know, for a lot of you, actually, this probably applies to a lot of people listening to this show. It's really confusing sometimes, like which foods to choose. And there's, you know, labeling, obviously, on the front that says it's so healthy and it's great for your heart and great for cholesterol, but really learning a lot more about the ingredients, it's the total opposite. You really can't trust labels. So they've created a system to make shopping really, really easy and simple and knowing what's really healthy and what's not. That's going to be next week's show. So check it out. Also, you can always check me out, drlaurennoel.com. I'm a naturopathic doctor in San Diego. I work with patients locally as well as all over the country. So if you ever need a doctor and really wanted to get well, check me out. I'd love to work with you. You can also check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash drlaurennoel. And Precedence is always given to callers. If you'd like to call and ask a question tonight, it's a really great opportunity to get your questions answered by doctors who really know their stuff and who really are wanting to help you and be well, especially for your kids and your babies. So the number is 818-495-6919. We'll be taking calls tonight. So who I have on the show tonight is Dr. Matt Burrell. I don't, maybe I need to pronounce it correctly, Baral, I believe. He received his MD degree from Bastyr University in 2000. He's the chair of the Department of Pediatrics and associate professor of pediatrics at SCNM, where he's been supervising students on pediatric rotations and teaching pediatric medicine to medical students since 2001. His private practice focuses on primary pediatric care 
in autism and has published three research studies on the correlation between heavy metal toxicity and autism. He co-authored the first two books on, the, on integrative pediatric medicine, titled Integrative Medicine for Children and Integrative Pediatrics. He serves as a pediatric contributing editor, editor to the National Medicine Journal and the International Journal of Naturopathic Medicine, and he is a founding and current president of the Pediatric Association of Naturopathic Physicians. So, Dr. Matt Burrell, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome to Dr. La Radio. Oh, thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. Welcome. Okay, great. Thank you. I didn't know if uh, I didn't know if you could hear me because this phone system is fascinating. And, Isn't that crazy? Uh, I've been on the radio a few times, but um, but this is a new system for me. So I'm really glad you can hear me because I, I didn't know. know what was that? Were you sweating bullets was. over there? <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit, but then I got your email, so we're all good. Yeah, you know, Blog Talk Radio has been crazy. There's times where people just can't hear the guests or I can't hear them, but, the, you know, mm-hmm. the listeners can hear, and it's like you never know what you're going to get with live radio, so it's never a dull moment. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad uh, Glad it worked out. Yeah, it totally worked out. So tell me, did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, it's Burrell. Burrell, okay, thank you. <laughs> at, at least that's what that's what the people at Ellis Island said, so okay. it was probably a different Burrell. name at some other point in my life. Okay, we'll go with Dr. Burrell. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the show. And, you know, what I would love to hear more about is, you know, always kind of the, the first question I ask my guests is what got you into this field that you, you know, that you're involved with, obviously, naturopathic medicine, but also, you know, the specialty of pediatrics? Well, naturopathic medicine, when I started uh, medical school, was in 1996. And uh, in 96, the world of naturopathic medicine, as well as the world of of integrative pediatric medicine or natural medicine for children, was really sort of, um, I think, ignored as um, an important part of of medicine. And I think much of the focus uh, over the years has been, uh, and the sorts of things that get, you know, so much press, uh, as well as so much sort of uh, airtime on television and things like that or ways for people to, you know, to lose weight and how to cut down on your heart disease risk. But uh, there's just not enough attention given to the world of, of pediatrics. And, you know, all of these things that we're dealing with in the adult population can really be prevented uh, at the time that you're treating a a child. I mean, the pediatrician, if they know enough about nutrition and about preventative medicine can really sort of curb the risk of having a heart attack, you know, in your third or fourth decade of life and can really also help program uh, the child's metabolic rate so that they're not uh, predisposed or they don't uh, have an increased risk of getting diabetes or becoming obese. That Those two issues that, as you mentioned in the introduction, are really uh, become now more prevalent than they've ever been. And with the kind of risk that we have uh, in the the childhood population now, the kind of of health parameters and statistics that that we see now in in much of the public health research uh, really tells us that the generation of children now um, have what's expected to be a, a shorter, you know, life duration than their parents, which is which is really quite amazing. I mean, we've never been in a situation like this. And so often what I think 
kind of occurs is um, drug companies put such a huge amount of money into medications to help children kind of fight disease that most of which can be really taken care of by a good diet and lifestyle and, you know, breastfeeding and um, not having cesarean sections if you can avoid it um, and, you know, having a healthy home life. And so <clears throat> often those things, you know, aren't available to a lot of people and uh, and so we have all the issues that exist today. Uh, my interest in pediatrics really came from uh, a time when I was about my third year of medical school and I realized that nobody was really doing only pediatrics and I got a great opportunity with a pediatrician, actually a conventional pediatrician, who uh, was taking naturopathic medical students at the time as observers and I went in there and I just fell in love with the idea that I got to hang out with kids all day and kind of half of my um uh, my discussions usually included some sort of joking around with the kids, and um, and it was a more kind of stimulating, thinking outside the box kind of um, day of medicine than what some of my colleagues were doing. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with adult medicine, of course, and it's extremely important uh, to have that aspect of medicine. But you know, pediatrics just kind of called to me, and there was also nobody else really specializing in pediatrics, which is why then. Mm-hmm the Pediatric Association. So uh, within this year, we're going to start being able to hold a certification exam for naturopathic physicians to become uh, what will be termed naturopathic pediatricians. So they will be uh, board certified in naturopathic pediatric medicine. And uh, those physicians will have kind of a a more specialized focus in their practice and in their knowledge base of uh, pediatric medicine and how to treat children. Really cool. So did you also get more of an interest because did you do you have any kids yourself? I don't and uh I get oh. I, I get asked that question quite a bit and uh what is the reason for that? Everybody keeps asking me and I just <laughs> I guess uh, I usually say, you know, not having children has allowed me to really focus on my career and kind of further the cause that I think is really important. Um and I guess the more existential uh, answer would be because the universe says that uh, I shouldn't have any kids at this time. Maybe it will happen at some point in the future. We'll see. Plus, you probably get to play with hundreds of kids. You probably feel like you have kids anyway, right? I have, you know, I have I have hundreds of kids that I yeah. take care of. And uh, most of the time, I see them when they're only sick. So right. uh, I don't know if that's traumatized me to not wanting kids or, or what, but uh, but I, I love hanging out with kids, so it's uh, it works out in the end. Really, really cool. Well, that kind of leads me into my first question, which, you know, you say you normally see mostly sick kids, but mm-hmm. what can what can parents do to keep their kids mm-hmm. healthy so that they don't really have to deal with having to take their kid into the doctor when they're sick. And, of course, you know, being sick sometimes is a good thing. It's not always, you know, a bad thing to have a fever and all those things like we'll get into a little bit later. But just to really from a preventative standpoint, keeping your kids healthy, what are some tips you can give to the parents? Well, I think there's a number of, of issues that often uh, conventional pediatricians just really don't, don't put much worth into, which I, I think is a travesty and, and very misleading. Um, 
I think that often parents get told, well, you know, this is your kid's fifth ear infection in the past year. Why don't we, you know, poke a hole in the eardrum and let that pus drain out continuously, and then your child won't have any more ear infections, um, and everything will be great. Now, the problem with this is several fold. It costs the parents, you know, a lot of time lost. It costs the child plenty of pain and discomfort. It costs the insurance companies a lot of money to get, you know, a, a tube put in the in the eardrum. Um, when the child gets antibiotics continuously, when they have ear infections, which is still quite commonplace, not as much as it used to be, but still quite commonplace in many practices to just get. Uh, antibiotics for every infection, even if it's possibly a virus, um, you're really screwing up the, the good bacteria in the gut. And we want that that bacteria that's sort of evolved over the years or the months the child's been alive, we want that bacteria, that good bacteria, to really flourish and help dictate how the immune system functions. Now, if you ever took my pediatrics class, at Southwest College, or if you um, if you've had me as uh, as your child's physician, um, you would have already heard this a million times because it's really I think one of the more profound things that we don't uh, we don't accept as as reality, and it's just it's it's so unfortunate. Um, the the point is that the immune system is kind of dictated often by what our gut flora looks like. And flora, I just mean bacteria. And so uh, in the first few years of life, first few months of life, whatever bacteria that child comes across kind of shapes how their immune system functions. And we see that children who are uh, born cesarean section, um, their risk for asthma increases drastically versus those kids who came through the birth canal. Now, the birthing process is not a very clean process. It should be a clean process because um, it actually benefits us to come through the birth canal. You know, we we encounter pee and poop and all this sort of skin flora. We come through, you know, the birth canal, which has all sorts of bacteria, and all that bacteria is actually really good for the child. It actually starts the process of sort of uh, planting the seeds, if you will, of good health and good immune function. So 75% or three-quarters of our immune system is located in our intestines. And so if you can kind of um, prime those intestines for optimal functioning, which is through good sort of feeding of the intestinal tract, then we see that that reflects in better health later on in life. So Avoiding antibiotics as much as possible is a really important thing. Um, and another thing that, that often is ignored in children, and uh, I don't know why more pediatricians aren't testing for vitamin D levels, but um, vitamin D testing I do in all my patients who are uh, a year or older. And uh, I think that I've probably now, I don't know, maybe... 500, 600 kids have tested vitamin D, and the average vitamin D level for kids who are not taking vitamin D tends to uh, sit around uh, 30 to 35. Now, mm -hmm. the reason why I'm mentioning vitamin D is that it is 
Um, a known fact in the past probably, I'd say, two or three years, there is a huge amount of research that's emerged in the scientific literature showing that children who are lower in their vitamin D levels are sicker, generally. They have more severe infections. Um, they have more severe asthma exacerbations if they have asthma. Um, if it's an asthmatic patient, their steroids don't work nearly as well if they're vitamin D deficient. Uh, you can prevent colds and flus. Your risk of colds and flu uh, go down dramatically if you start supplementing, if you have adequate levels of vitamin D. So vitamin D is a, is a definite. And, uh, you know, parents can get vitamin D. And typically the form that we will prescribe is vitamin D3. And children really need to be on a, on a consistent vitamin D supplement. And they need to have their levels... Uh, monitored. I'd say I do it every six months just to make sure that they don't get into toxic levels uh, and make sure that they're that they're in a reasonable range. I like their range to be 50 and above, you know, still remaining within the reference range, but, you know, most physicians will say, well, it's, you know, vitamin D is very dangerous because it can be toxic, which is true. It can be toxic. However, we never see toxicity symptoms or levels really even below 200. 100 should be the top of the range. I mean, that's what most labs uh, hold vitamin D levels at. And so I like to see it somewhere between 50 and 90 for my patients, uh, especially if they're chronically sick. I want to make sure that that vitamin D level stays at a nice high range. And typically I see that children remain healthier and, you know, don't have as many ear infections or throat infections or, you know, asthma flare-ups uh, if their vitamin D levels are okay. And so hmm. going back to the probiotic question or the the, the good bacteria question is uh, you need to have good bacteria in the gut. If you have a child who hasn't breastfed, their gut is just not going to be the same kind of bacterial environment as somebody who uh, who is breastfed. So a child who's on formula, who is born cesarean section, that child probably has a terrible bacterial environment in their gut. And as a result, is probably a very sick child. There are some children who are born cesarean section and who've only gotten formula their whole lives who are very healthy. And you just chalk that up to you know, whoever's susceptible to a stressful situation will show. I mean, they'll show up. They'll be going to the doctor much more. And it doesn't happen in 100% of the cases. But in more cases than not, if, you know, your gut bacteria is not good, you're not going to be a healthy child. And so for those sorts of patients, I like to always stress the importance of, of being on a good bacterial supplement. Um, a few things that are out out there, which I think are, are reasonable, uh, you know, probiotic supplements are called, would be, I think Jarrow carries a, makes a pretty good supplement. I think that um, Nature's Way has some good products. We're talking strictly over-the-counter stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the one good probiotic supplement that is out there uh, that has probably the most amount of research on it would be something called Culturel, or um, it's just another lactobacillus strain. But... Um, uh, those are the two big things. I would say vitamin D and probiotics kind of set a nice tone for uh, for good health. And then there's some other supplements out there like uh, zinc and vitamin A and vitamin C that you can give 
con- you know, chronically every day to a child while you remain in you know, the, the reasonable safe levels. And um, you know, the child can uh, enjoy a healthier life if they're on those supplements for a long period of time. Got it. So let's say a, a parent takes their child into their conventional doctor. The conventional doctor says they have an ear infection and wants to prescribe antibiotics, and maybe this has happened a few times, right? What, mm-hmm. um, what would be some options you could offer for those parents at that point when they don't want to have to put their kids on antibiotics again? Well, <clears throat> I'd say, you know, the, the, one, the one thing that I didn't actually also mention would be obviously diet. Now, um, I personally don't think that humans have a need for for dairy. And whether or not, you know, raw milk is an option, which, you know, it's not as easily available to, you know, the general population, um, whether or not those children will benefit from eating raw milk, I think the jury's still out because we don't have the research behind it at this point. You know, kids who are either you know, eating, let's say, a completely vegan diet with zero dairy or kids who are eating raw milk with probably a lot of beneficial bacteria, we don't have that comparison. So mainly what I'm dealing with is kids who are just on conventional dairy, which I think is incredibly unhealthy for for humans as a whole. Now, mm-hmm. why might that be? Um, is it because the pasteurization or homogenization process just denatures the proteins and then it makes the proteins now extremely... Uh, kind of allergenic or reactive to the human body, I don't really know, to be totally honest. But what I do know is that kids who drink several glasses of milk a day because they've been tricked into the idea that they need milk in order to grow healthy bones, those are some of the most unhealthy kids. They have Mm -hmm. constipation or they have asthma or they have eczema or they have a chronic runny nose or they're constantly sick or they have chronic ear infections. Um, or they have behavioral problems, those kids typically do much better when taken off dairy and given Mm -hmm. some other, let's say, a plant form of calcium. Um, We know from a lot of the research done on people who don't eat dairy, let's say the vegan population, that those children grow into healthy children and they don't have things like osteoporosis or osteopenia or any of the concerning bone issues. So the the kind of myth that you need milk in order to grow healthy bones, I think, is slowly falling out of favor. But, you know, the the, the Dairy Council has a pretty big stronghold on uh, on the American mind that uh, all children need milk, which I say is simply not true. And so mm-hmm. I would say that changing around the typical diet, the standard American diet of eating a huge amount of sugar, which will also impair the immune system, um, and eating certain foods that seem to uh, aggravate the child's body uh, need to be removed. And mm-hmm. often parents ask me how you know, they know which sort of foods their child should be avoiding. You know, we have certain tests. They're not 100%, and I don't think that we have any test out there that is 100% accurate. I think that it might be generations and generations before we get to that point. But I think that we have a fairly good guide, which is called the IgG test. Um, it stands for immunoglobulin G. It just represents a kind of a delayed-type hypersensitivity reaction to certain foods that we eat. Now, uh, when parents get this test, 
uh, or when parents request this test from their pediatrician, sometimes uh, from what I hear from my patients who kind of see me along with their pediatrician, um, if they ask for that test for the pediatrician, some pediatricians will actually say, uh, you know, that test is useless. If you eat the food, then, you know, it will come up high on the test anyway, and it's not totally accurate, so let's not do it. But I, I think that's a very kind of narrow-minded way to look at medicine because if we have something that might actually give us some kind of a guide, maybe it's not going to be 100%, but if we have something that will give us some sort of a guide as to what might improve our child's health, I don't see any harm in actually running the test. And I actually run that test on almost all of my patients because if it shows us something, if it shows us a reaction to something, and we consider removing that food, if the child gets better, then, you know, we've, we've flipped the coin and, and, uh, and we were correct. We had a beneficial effect. If they don't get better after removing the food for um, certainly longer than what most conventional physicians say, which is like maybe a week or two weeks, I usually like to say remove the food for six to eight weeks and then let's see. And when I say six to eight weeks removing it, that's 100% removing that food, which whether, you know, if we're avoiding dairy, the test shows high for dairy, then, you know, no cottage cheese, no cheese, no yogurt. Basically anything that came out of a cow that got put into a different kind of form, remove it completely, ingredients and everything, and then see how the child does. The child's healthier at the end of, you know, six to eight weeks, then we know we've kind of we're on to something. Um, so the big things are really the big three things are changing the diet around, uh, you know, removing sugar, removing processed foods, uh, colorings and flavorings and all that, and uh, vitamin D and good bacteria. Mm-hmm. Those would be the three yeah. big ones. There's a number of other supplements out there. There's There's elderberry, which I think is a very strong antiviral that also tastes very good. Um, there is something called larch, which is uh, a substance derived from the larch tree uh, that also stimulates the immune system on kind of a mucosal level and has very nice bland taste. Uh, you can mix it up in food or drink. And so usually I kind of do uh, a little bit of a cocktail, which includes vitamin A, C, uh, sometimes vitamin E, zinc, larch, and so on. And and typically, I see that kids no longer need to either get their tonsils removed um, or get tubes in their ears or they don't go through, you know, a large amount of antibiotic use after they start getting on some of these kind of protocols, if you want to call them that. So awesome. I love it. I love just the basics, but they're so powerful, and it makes such a huge difference for kids to, you know, obviously stay well and prevent from getting things in the uh, in the future. And I want to apologize to the listeners. I just moved my apartment right next to a train track, so that's the noise <laughs> in the background. I keep putting it on mute. So if you hear a little something, that's, that's the price I pay for living in a hip area. Anyways, <laughs> let's talk about something that's kind of a controversial topic. Parents are so afraid of this, and this, are, this is fevers. So we uh-huh. both know, obviously, fevers. as matched by the doctors, fevers can be very beneficial. You On your website, you talk about some of the myths of fevers. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, yeah, I think that, um, again, there's some pretty common uh, myths about fevers that, that parents have sort of held on to, um, really out of 
more like just being super cautious about, you know, their child and their child's health, which is totally understandable. Um, the website, which uh, is just for the listeners, it's drmatthewbarral.com, and it's drmatthewbarral.com. And there's some articles on there and things like that that you can kind of read up on and check out. A lot of what we're talking about tonight is probably covered on there, but there's some of my, my research papers are on there as well, and so you can check that out. But, um, you know, the the fever question is a common one. I would say that, you know, the the things that parents typically ask is how high should the fever get until I decide to give uh, Tylenol? So there's a few things that's kind of wrong with that question. And I will reiterate that there is no wrong question in my practice, obviously, but there are a few things that need to be cleared up before we even kind of answer that question. First is, uh, there is no number. And children will typically uh, get fevers. It can go up to, you know, 105 even, but it's really not that common. Um, can get fevers up to 104, 105. And the child doesn't get damaged from the fever. That doesn't occur. Children who have just a fever from, let's say, an ear infection or a viral infection or the flu or this or that, nobody dies from the fever. And nobody gets brain damage from the fever. What you can get hurt from is the results of having a fever. And the results of having a fever is just becoming really dehydrated and, or... Um, basically really dehydrated is the biggest thing that we're concerned about with fever. So you have to make sure that the child stays hydrated. Uh, ways to do that is you, know, you can give um, electrolyte drinks. There's plenty of electrolyte drinks around. Uh, there's Pedialyte, which I'm not crazy about because it's got some colorings and some other sugars in there, but it seems to do the basic job um, if you're in a pinch. Uh, you know, there's some natural electrolyte uh kind of replenishers that are in the health food store that you can also use. But um, really the issue is making sure that the child is well hydrated. Now, the other problem here that fever causes is it makes kids incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, and everybody who's listened, I'm sure, has had a fever at some point, um, at some point in their life. And so you just don't want to do anything. You know, there's one of the myths that I have on the on the website says uh, feed a fever, starve a cold. There's no reason that you need to feed a person when they're very sick. If they're very sick and and their body is shut down, they can't lift their arm to you know to change the remote control, or they can't you know they don't have enough energy even to get up and to to go to the bathroom. Their body is shutting down. It doesn't need to kind of expend energy in these other areas like, um, you know, digesting a bunch of food, which, you know, as we've seen both in ourselves and other people when we're sick, we don't really want to sit down and eat like a big steak and potatoes kind of dinner because our body's not really focusing on trying to get nourished because it's focusing on something else, kind of fighting a, a very large battle inside. And so the the first myth is uh, there is no number that a child will get brain damage from a fever because that doesn't occur. Uh, mm. The second thing is 
that um, whether or not to, at what point do you use Tylenol? And we talked about specifically the um, the idea that a child will actually get so dehydrated during a fever because they don't feel like drinking or they're sweating or whatever, make sure that that child's hydrated. If the child has a febrile seizure, which is a fever during um, during a seizure, then um, that's actually okay. It, that doesn't damage the child, and children can't die from febrile seizures. If the seizure goes on for 20 minutes, longer than 20 minutes, and that is a terrifying amount of time to watch your child seize, um, then you it's recommended that you are then needing to go to the ER or urgent care or something like that. Can we stop a seizure from occurring if our child has a fever? Well, if a child is prone to febrile seizures, then they will actually not um, – you won't be able to control their seizure. This is what the research says, is that you won't be able to control the chance of them getting a seizure or not by giving them an anti-fever medicine. And so uh, – some people say it's the speed of how high the fever goes, um, which is also just not true. It's just kind of unpredictable. Febrile seizures are one of those things that we just don't kind of know a lot about. We just know we got to make sure that when the child's seizing, they don't hit their head on something and, you know, give them a fever medication if they're so uncomfortable that they can't drink water or sleep well or they're just completely miserable. Um, I think that there is a time to consider giving fever medications, and those are the times. Uh, there's some diehard naturopathic physicians who say never give an anti-fever medication. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not that strict with my with my patients or with my, uh, yeah, with my patients. I mean, if the child's really uncomfortable, I, I'm okay with giving a fever medication. It's the type of fever medication that I think should be addressed. And, um, when parents say, when should I give my child Tylenol, the other kind of issue with that statement, you know, how high should a fever get before I give my child Tylenol, we've just talked about there is no number that we go with because some kids are at 104 and they seem just kind of a little tired and punky and, and that's okay and we just leave it at that. And as long as they're hydrated, it's cool, but there are some kids who get like a, you know, a 101 and they're like miserable and crying and, you know, they they seem like they're in agony. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of take into consideration the presentation of the child, you know, and, and this is really more of a parental kind of um, question is, you know, parents, if you feel that your child is incredibly miserable and your child won't drink because they're miserable from the fever or... Um, they won't sleep because they can't because they're just so uncomfortable from the fever, it's okay to give an anti-fever medicine. I mean, but here's the thing is that everybody seems to go to Tylenol, and I don't know why that is because Tylenol is incredibly toxic. Now, when we look at, um, you know, the most common poisonings of children, Tylenol is one of those things that's, that's up there in the top contenders because it's a really toxic toxic substance. Ibuprofen, I think, is is much better than Tylenol. Uh, the toxicity isn't nearly as nearly high. The dose you can give at um, uh, much lower doses for ibuprofen to be effective. Ibuprofen lasts a lot longer than Tylenol does. Uh, and I don't think that you run the kind of 
you know, the risk of cumulative toxicity when we're looking at uh, at ibuprofen dosing. So uh, Advil or Motrin, those are other names for, for ibuprofen, I think is a much better option. What about something um, naturally to lower the, the fever? Any options that, that you've seen that work? Well, another misconception um, that's on the website really talks about, you know, dunking your kid in a cool bath. And I hope that no mm-hmm. parent um, is actually feels that that's an okay thing to do because not only is it really mean, but it's also <laughs> one of those things that, that will really put your child potentially in uh, a really severe overheating case because, you know, what your child's body is doing is trying to get rid of some of the heat. You know, the bacteria, the virus has taken the set point uh, in the brain and uh, or the set temperature point and, um, and kind of, you know, mess with that a little bit. So now the body is trying to basically get rid of some of this heat that's building up. And uh, the way it'll do that is the child will get flushed, the child will start sweating, the child's skin will feel really hot. And if you now take the child and dump them in a cold bath, what will occur is all of that hot blood that's circulating that's trying to sort of cool down by coming to the surface of the skin will now get driven into the center of the body, into the core, and now the child will be really uncomfortable. And also potentially we're getting into like a hyperthermic uh, sort of state, which could actually cause some bigger problems in the child. So never dunk your child in a cool bath to try and bring the fever down. Um, if you're going to do some kind of a sponge bath, I think it's reasonable to do uh, like a, uh, a tepid sponge bath or a room temperature sponge bath where you're applying room temperature water and then allowing that water to kind of evaporate off the child's skin. Now, mm-hmm. there isn't any science behind uh, kind of supporting the idea that that will actually lower the temperature. Um, it's kind of a misperception that um, this sort of tepid sponge bath will actually lower the temperature, the core temperature of the patient. But in some cases, it could certainly make them feel a lot more comfortable, which is what we want to get to, right? The main key about giving an anti-fever medication is making the child more comfortable so that they can start to hydrate more, they can sleep better so that their body can recuperate. And sometimes the tepid sponge bath might actually help with that. But as far as actually changing the set point, we see that that mainly the thing that will help with that is are the anti-fever medications. Now, um, there are a few botanical medicines like uh, white willow bark, which is really just what aspirin is derived from, um, that will also have an effect on the fever, basically because, you know, we're giving aspirin. But um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a little bit... uh, I think that the dosing for white willow bark isn't clearly established in the childhood population. And I'm also somewhat concerned about Rye syndrome, uh, I know mm-hmm. there's been some discussion about whether or not Rye syndrome is actually um, caused by aspirin or not, but that's a whole different discussion. I would say that um, really the issue is keeping a child hydrated because, again, another thing that I didn't mention is that a dehydrated child will have a higher fever than a hydrated child. And so if you can keep your child hydrated, the chances of fever going up is lessened to to a, a pretty large extent. So those are the things that I would consider for um, for fever patients. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, other ideas to keep kids hydrated would be, you know, um, chewing on ice chips and, uh, you know, popsicles made out of uh, made out of herbal tea or mixed with mm. some juice. I think those are really good options to do. Mm. Awesome. So you parents heard it from the source here, you know, don't, don't fear the fever. It's there for a reason, and just let it do its course, and obviously take care of any side effects that could come along from that. I'm going to open it up to the phone lines here. The number is 818-495-6919. I have uh, no callers in queue right now, so it's wide open for you guys to call in and ask questions. 818-495-6919. I'm going to take it to Facebook questions here, um, and then also I want to get to uh, the topic of autism and heavy metals. I thought that was really fascinating about the intro. Um, but a couple questions here from Facebook. So uh, this is from Roxy. She wants to know, how do you assist small children in getting rid of a nasty cough, so natural treatments for a cough? Well, we should understand, and, and I'm, I'm uh, kind of telling this also from, like, a, a medical student educator perspective because we get this question uh, quite a bit, and, you know, the idea of... Um, of treating the cough is that's one thing that I'll that I'll say. But we should also know that the pattern of most coughs, like let's say a bronchitis, is a child will get a dry cough that will then turn into a wet cough. And usually, what I try to explain to my medical students um, and also to my parents who have kids who have a you know a dry cough is that you know when you when you're kind of counseling them in the office, counseling parents, you need to remind parents that that cough will probably start to sound worse, but it won't necessarily mean that they're getting worse. Now, kids with coughs need to be evaluated in the office. It's just plain and simple. But in some cases, or I should say in most cases of bronchitis, the child will get a dry cough, which will turn into a wet cough. So often I'll see parents come back who maybe I didn't educate thoroughly enough or maybe, you know, didn't take to heart what I had mentioned when they when their child had a dry cough, um, and they'll come back and they say, my child's cough is worse. But really, all that's happened is that it's gone from the dry to the wet, which is kind of the typical presentation of bronchitis. Now, the dry to wet basically means that you know, the wet cough is now the mucus, basically the accumulation of the immune system that's killed off everything that it's been fighting in the body and now it's trying to get rid of it outside the body, right? So just like when we have infectious diarrhea, the body's trying to get rid of that particular bug by pooping it out of the body. Just like, you know, we have, let's say, sinusitis and we got puffs and stuff or we got, you know, a cough in our chest, the body is trying to expel um, the rest of, you know, uh, rest of the garbage that it's been cleaning up this whole time. And so there's two kind of um, there's two types of coughs that we're treating. Typically, the, the things that I found to be most helpful for coughs uh, that have some some good uh, good science behind it. One is uh, is wild cherry bark, which is otherwise known as prunus. That's a Latin name, P-R-U-N-U-S. Wild cherry bark is really excellent. Uh, has some excellent anti cough properties, uh, as does glyceriza or licorice root. That also has some really strong antiviral as well as uh, anti-cough properties. Usually give those in 
either a tincture or a standard extract. Um, recently, just uh, in 2010, we had some really cool stuff come out in the Journal of Adolescent Medicine uh, showing that buckwheat honey has some really uh, spectacular effects on cough, actually decreases cough uh, quite well and uh, actually did a better job than placebo as well as uh, dextromethorphan. Dextromethorphan is that over-the-counter cough suppressant, um, otherwise known as the DM component uh, in Robitussin. So Robitussin DM is dextromethorphan. Dextromethorphan seems to be pretty effective for cough, but this one study was published about two years ago. We saw that um, that buckwheat honey, mainly because the the antioxidant properties of that particular kind of honey seems to really help with the cough. Um, what's fascinating is that the same nerves that uh, are involved with the cough reflex are they follow the same path as the nerves that uh, that sense sweet in the mouth and on the tongue. And so maybe what's happening when we're giving uh, honey to children is that we're kind of blocking that sort of cough reflex uh, that's getting sent to the brain from the brain down to the to the diaphragm. Um, mm-hmm. It should be noted that you know you shouldn't be giving honey to kids who are less than a year because of the concerns with botulism. Um, I think that that's a a reasonable concern. Uh, in younger kids, you can use things like wild cherry bark and 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 licorice. It's just you know, you should be using, obviously, a doctor's uh, supervision with that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. And then this question is from Ruth, and she says um, she just wrote baby boy and eczema. So I'm assuming her baby boy has eczema. Thoughts? Uh-huh. The question was... She just was wrote it, baby boy and eczema. The... Yeah, so just like, you know, some maybe some natural solutions for dealing with eczema for her baby boy. Well, um we know that the that the scientific literature does support the use of probiotics and its success with eczema. So absolutely we need to get the child on a really uh, high dose of good quality probiotics. I usually go between 6 to 10 billion colony forming units or 6 to 10 billion units per day. Uh, the worst that's going to happen with a baby who is getting good gut bacteria is that they'll get some gas and bloating as their body's kind of adjusting to that new um, introduction of a different kind of bacterial population in their gut. But that usually has some very uh, strong effects. Another thing that we see super beneficial for kids with eczema is um, uh, is essential fatty acids. You know, there's there's fish sources of that. There's plant sources of essential fatty acids. Um, either way, you know, several hundred milligrams, uh, depending on how big the child is, several times a day, uh, can also actually do a very good job at calming eczema down. And then homeopathy is also a really excellent uh, treatment for some kids who have eczema. And uh, you just need to kind of know what you're doing as far as what homeopathic remedy to prescribe. But I've seen some really... uh, uh, amazing results with just homeopathy in kids with uh, kids with eczema. Sweet, awesome! You guys listening in who would like to call and ask a question? Again, the phone lines are open eight one eight four nine five six nine one nine. Now, this question is 
way more controversial than the fever question. This is a real big hot topic, and there's varying views, like, from both extremes. And this is, of course, vaccinations. So Mm -hmm. what's your take on vaccinations? Are there any that you really recommend are really important for parents to have their kids get? And so, yeah, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I actually I, I just had this discussion with a with some parents today, um, and I have it pretty much every day that I see patients. I will answer this question at least two or I'm three sure. times, and you know that there is no easy answer. Um, yeah, there are some websites that are just completely anti-vaccine and say uh, that there's no vaccine that is suitable for humans. There are some websites that say, you know, do only what the CDC tells you to do. Which is um, a lot. And then there's, yeah, which is a lot. And, I mean, that's yeah. the kind of general theme. Um, and then there is, you know, uh, and they're more hard to find. It takes kind of a trained eye, I think, to see which sort of um, sources are out there. And there isn't any one really clear source, I would say, that, that I rely on um, for guidance as far as um, what to do exactly because, honestly, nobody knows what to do exactly. And if somebody tells you they absolutely know that all vaccines are good or all vaccines are bad, they're just ignorant. And I think that there's um, just a huge kind of array of issues that need to be addressed when we're talking about vaccines. Um, I usually try and break down with my patients the um, sort of a few points. One is, um, you know, what's your child got so far as far as vaccinations? There are some cases where parents kind of start late and then they put it off for a while, and I see all sorts of different kinds of scenarios in my practice because parents usually come to me if they have – you know, they went to their pediatrician and their pediatrician yelled at them because they wouldn't do everything that the pediatrician recommended, which is just bad practice in general because then you've just kind of ostracized your patient. You know, if your pediatrician is not open to having the discussion in an unbiased fashion, then you're going to lose a patient and you're not going to get that benefit of kind of educating the patient on, you know, what your your beliefs are. And so, you know, I tried it. Uh, impress upon my medical students to remove the passion and the bias out of the vaccination discussion because nobody can be 100% right. So the discussion I like to start off with is, um, you know, if your child has had a few vaccinations already, let's look at the CDC catch-up immunization schedule. There are some kids who only need, let's say, one shot of a particular vaccine uh, because the parents started late and now the child's a certain age that they don't need another shot of that of that vaccine. That's one way to approach it because, um, in all reality, it's possible that some there are some kids out there who don't need as many shots just because of the timing of when they when the parents started vaccinating. Um, so that's one thing. And so any physician who's doing alternative vaccination scheduling um, should be extremely familiar with the catch-up immunization schedule that's available all over the Internet, and that's put out by the CDC. Um, another question is, you know, what are the chances 
that your child will get the disease. Now, if we take, let's say, two vaccines that are on the vaccination schedule, let's say we take uh, Prevnar or, or the pneumococcal vaccine, the same thing, uh, versus, let's say, polio. Now, your chance of getting exposed to pneumococcus is actually is, is reasonable. I mean, it's not impossible to get exposed to that. Not like polio, which the World Health Organization has concluded in the 90s that really the Western Hemisphere is absent of all polio. Now, if you look at the numbers, you can say, okay, logically, you know, my, the chance of my child getting polio is actually very low, and um, the chance of my child getting pneumococcus is actually significant enough that maybe I should consider this and, and we'll go through with that. Every parent's going to have their own take on it. Um, there are physicians who have seen polio kill children or cripple children, and to them, polio is important enough, even if they're in this country, that they'll recommend it to all their patients. And that's completely fine. That's a, you know, a perspective question. And, um, you know, I haven't seen polio uh, cripple or, or kill anyone. So it's not as kind of, uh, it doesn't have the emotional flavor to me that it might for somebody who's been to Africa and they've seen, or India and they've seen, uh, you know, polio do some damage. So I don't think that it's it's kind of fair to say, that anybody who recommends vaccines just doesn't care about children or, or doesn't care about the health or is ignoring all of the issues, I think it's not an easy, you know, question to answer. I think that most pediatricians are just doing what they were taught uh, is the best thing to do for most children. Unfortunately, some kids just don't respond to vaccines nearly as well or, you know, the amount of vaccines that they get in one shot really just kind of overwhelms their immune system and something occurs. Um, it's, that's an unpredictable sort of thing. Uh, the question, the next question would be really uh, how many shots should we get? And that's, again, based on, you know, what do you think your child is going to get exposed to? There's no way to know what your child will be exposed to. Nobody can predict that. But we could kind of, like, look at public health records and we could look at the sort of logistics of childhood disease and see that, you know, nobody's getting polio anymore in this country. So if we really wanted to prioritize, let's prioritize with the bugs that are still kind of circulating in, let's say, the U.S. population we're going to talk about being here and we talk about kids who are just going to be exposed to people who have only been in the United States, which, again, isn't also the case, but uh, or isn't always the case. But... Um, you know, you have a child who uh, who's kind of in daycare, they'll probably get exposed to some of these vaccine-preventable bugs, which would be HIV or Haemophilus influenza B is in boy, not HIV is in Victor. There is no vaccine for HIV, but HIV. Um, and Haemophilus influenza is not the flu vaccine, but it sounds like it. It's a bacteria that causes meningitis. Um, that one... The pneumococcus, which is otherwise known as the PCV or Prevnar vaccine, um, and the DCAP vaccine are the three that I that I strongly recommend for any parent who's considering doing a delayed vaccination schedule. Uh, the reason being, like I said, for the two meningitis vaccines, the uh, 
uh, or the meningitis bugs, the HIV and the PCV or Prevnar, uh, I think that those bugs still circulate. We know that pertussis still circulates around um, in this country because we have outbreaks uh, every once in a while. Um, pertussis or whooping cough, which is the P part of the DTaP vaccine, I think is concerning most to kids who are less than three months. You can die from pertussis uh, if you're less than three months old and you get you know, pertussis, which is whooping cough. But um, once you're sort of several years old, the chance of, of you dying from pertussis is really actually quite low. However, it's not just like a walk in the park. I mean, pertussis is a miserable disease, and it shouldn't just be blown off. So now what parents have to kind of conclude is, are they, what are they going to weigh as more important? Are they going to weigh the child's, um, you know, possibly going to be protected from whooping cough if they are exposed to it, or are they more concerned with the possible side effects from the vaccine? Um, and that's a decision that nobody could really make except for the parents, in my opinion. Um, it's a tough question to answer, and it's why, you know, I usually kind of spend about 20 minutes with a family discussing the ins and outs of the vaccine schedule, uh, and then, you know, the end result is they usually end up saying to the parents, say, you know, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> because I'm just mm -hmm. here as the messenger and kind of giving you some basic some basic resources. Um, I don't know what your child is going to get exposed to, and I don't know if your child is going to get a side effect from the vaccine. It's very hard to tell. So um, mm -hmm. the more, the, the deeper that you kind of get into it, the the more you realize, even as a physician, uh, you realize what you don't know. And so right. you just kind of gather as much information that you can and you pass on that information um, yeah. and kind of help educate parents so parents feel like they're making a more educated decision. Um, well, I think it's important, my, you know, yeah. making an educated decision versus an emotional decision, right? Because people oftentimes are gravitated towards one way of looking at it, like all vaccines are awful and they kind of get on this bandwagon versus like, okay, have you really looked at the research and seeing are there some that are maybe more beneficial, that are pretty safe to do? I mean, it's about really looking at the information and, and making an educated decision. So I think that's great, just giving the patients the information and letting them make the decision. Right. I think that that's very important. I think a, another really big issue with the vaccination question is <clears> – <throat> <clears throat> is um, whether or not to do more than one vaccine at a visit. And I think that it's difficult to to come up with a clear answer. Parents don't like their kids getting shots in general, so the idea of getting, you know, two to five shots in one visit is terrifying to most parents mm -hmm. and even more terrifying to the child. But, you know, parents don't like to see their kids get a lot of shots. And... Um, we don't have any science behind a delayed vaccine schedule um, or doing a kind of separated vaccines, like doing one vaccine per visit. But parents seem to feel a little bit more comfortable by doing it like that. They feel like you know, the insult is not as great to the bo child's body if they do it like that. Um, and so you know, they, they, some parents like to do it like that. Uh, if you ask me, I, I'm kind of... I think that it doesn't really matter if you do one versus two vaccines per visit, uh, but, you know, I, I could see the argument to doing them separately 
but I just I I don't know how valid the arguments are, and mm-hmm. um, I think that you know the big concerns that we've had in the past are really over thimerosal, which is the mercury preservative that has been phased out of the majority of the vaccines as a preservative um, really since about 2003. Many of the flu vaccines still have them. So uh, the, the the flu vaccines that don't, for the listeners out there who are considering doing a flu vaccine, um, if you have an immune-compromised person at home or, um, you know, if you have an immune-compromised child and you're really concerned about them getting the flu, uh, which I think is a reasonable concern, uh, the two vaccines that don't have any uh, mercury in them are the Fluzone, F-L-U-Z-O-N-E, only in the single-dose vials, not the multi-dose vials. Multi-dose vials do have some mercury in them. But the Fluzone in a single-dose vial, as well as the Flu Mist, which is a nasal spray flu vaccine, those are the only two that don't have thimerosal uh, in them. And so those are the two that I would suggest, you know, when parents say, should we do a flu vaccine or not? Um, I would say that, uh, you know, other questions exist like, you know, should we do the MMR, if at all? Should we do the chickenpox vaccine? Those are the ones that I think kids do um, the the poorest with, that they typically get a lot of uh, side effects from what I've seen and heard uh, from the live virus vaccines, which typically are the flu vaccine, uh, the MMR and the chickenpox vaccine. And so when we look at at how a child responds to those diseases, if they get them at a younger versus an older age, we actually see some uh, bigger problems when kids get some of these diseases as an older adult or as a teenager versus when they get it as a child. And that goes for, like, measles, mumps, rubella, and the chickenpox diseases, um, which is why... I usually suggest to parents that um, after their child uh, has kind of made it out of their um, the first few years of life and they're heading towards adolescence to start considering doing the measles, mumps, rubella shot uh, and or the, the chicken pox. Usually I recommend both of them, but uh, most parents I actually don't even really find myself discussing um, mm-hmm. the MMR, the chicken pox, because most parents want to put those off anyway. And I say, you know, I, I'm actually, and it's, you know, some parents find it strange that I'm an naturopathic physician and I suggest certain vaccines. But mm-hmm. I do think that there are, there are, you know, it's kind of a necessary evil, I feel, um, because you know, the 15 to 25 age range, uh, 25-year-old age range is, is really some of the higher uh, levels of deaths from from chickenpox, which is really odd because you know, we see a very low chance of dying from chickenpox as a child, but actually mm-hmm. increases when you get older, um, which is kind of a, a scary thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we were children, we didn't know of anybody dying from chickenpox, uh, and it didn't really become an issue until somebody came up with a vaccine, and then it became now, you know, a major health risk. Um, it's not to say that people aren't dying from chickenpox, and it's terrible if your child is the child that dies from chickenpox, I will say that it's it's extremely rare. Um, okay, there's it. a few other vaccines out there, the hepatitis vaccines that typically, you know, I mean, I think that there's one vaccine that is uh, absolutely 
not necessary in the pediatric population. I can pretty comfortably stand behind that statement is the hepatitis B vaccine for mm-hmm. for infants. And they always push it in the hospital. I don't know why. Uh, yeah. The child has zero risk if the mother is hepatitis B negative. Um, it's plain and simple. You can't get hepatitis B by coughing in somebody's face or by kissing somebody. Um, you can get it by having uh, a blood transfusion that is infected with hepatitis B, and you can get it from having unprotected sex with somebody who's infected with hepatitis B, and you can get it from sharing a needle with somebody mm-hmm. who has hepatitis B. But, <laughs> Nothing you know, a baby is going to be doing children, anytime soon, yeah. right? <laughs> most yeah. healthy children aren't dealing with that, with any of those things, um, right. until they get to, you know, a sexual activity kind of age. So I yeah. usually say hepatitis B is a reasonable vaccine to consider once the child is uh, approaching out of their, their teen years. Uh, Got it. Even now I'm going to open up to the yeah. phone line. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm going to inter- uh, open up to the phone lines. A couple quick callers, um, and then real quick, I want to touch on the autism thing that you um, have done some research on. And then, do you sure. mind running over about ten minutes over? Is that okay? I'm fine. Yes, that's, over time. Yeah, that's, that's cool. okay. Awesome. So the first caller is going to be the three zero three eight three three number, and then it's three zero three seven seven two. All right, so caller from the 303833 number. Welcome to Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, Dr. Lauren Noel. This is Justin What's... Noel calling from Colorado. That's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, What's Justin. Up, bro? It's your first time How calling. How you doing? <laughs> I got your message. Yeah, I definitely want to uh, talk to you about this gluten thing and learn a little bit more about it. And, um, you know, I've got some experience with. Uh, your nephew, who seems to act a lot better when he does eat gluten-free, and uh, yeah, and, and so does his mom. <laughs> she wanted me to throw that in there. <laughs> Anyways, um, so so just give me your thoughts on it. I mean, I'd really like to know what you really think about it, and you know, I mean, should he be totally gluten-free or? You know, I mean, because, you know, my whole life I've eaten gluten and I'm always going to, and that's just me. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, if it's something that can help my son, then obviously, um, you know, I would definitely look into that. I mean, he's a very picky eater, so it's very yeah. difficult for us to, to you know, change his, his habits and, you know, try to make him eat, you know, more healthily, healthfully. Um, but, I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, what sorts of things do you see when your child is eating gluten versus when they're not eating gluten? You know, I mean, his behavior is very erratic. He's gotten better as he's gotten older, um, but uh, my wife has seen a lot of differences when when he's gluten-free as opposed to when he eats gluten. Uh, she thinks Meaning that his, his moods are better. a little bit, like, a little, his moods are a little bit more even? They are. They are. I mean, his attention span is a lot uh, It's a lot better when he's gluten-free. That's what my wife okay. just mentioned. And he, But so he's many... so difficult to feed. I mean, this kid weighs, you know, 50 pounds. He's six years old, so uh-huh. he's, he's thin. But, uh-huh. I mean, he's just a very tough eater, very have tough. You put him, have you put him on the, um, on the growth charts? Like, as a, does he get seen by a pediatrician who puts him on a growth chart? Um, is he on a growth chart, honey? Yeah, he's right now the 50th percentile. 
He's about the 50th percentile. So your child is perfectly average. If he's at the 50th percentile for weight, there is zero issues with your child's weight. Now, okay. you might, you know, get convinced by other kids in the neighborhood who are bigger, uh, who are six years old, or he might be the runt of the class, but, you know, he happens to be in a classroom with a bunch of kids that are actually a lot kind of heavier for their age or bigger for their age. If your child's growing by all, you know, standard measurements, if your child's growing 50 percentile, there's nothing to be concerned about. Now, the question might come up like, well, is your child getting all the nutrients because they're not eating gluten? Uh, you know, there's nothing in gluten-containing grains that your child shouldn't be able to get from other non-gluten-containing grains or other foods. And so I'll give you kind of a very non-doctorish kind of conclusion, but it actually has a lot of um, doctoring behind it which is if your child behaves better when they're not eating a certain food, then maybe avoid that food as much as possible. Yeah. And that's kind of it. I wish it was more kind of interesting and sort of sexy than that, but it's, it's really <laughs> No, but not. I mean, it's, and, it's you know, just it's, simple. You know, it's, it's simple it's mathematics. Simple. It's, yeah. yeah, and it's not really, you know, we've. I think we've kind of, changed general pediatric medicine into this very complex kind of emergency base, like everybody's going to die if you don't get antibiotics at the first sniffle. That's kind of how we got into this mess in the first place, is being a little bit over-concerned over, uh, with certain things that really were never a, a big concern, things like fever um, or things like ear infections. Now, once, you know, the advent of... of you know, medication came around and pediatricians only had one thing to treat infections like antibiotics. We were like, all right, well, I guess we don't have anything else to do. We've got to do something. With this situation, your child is perfectly normal, is growing normally, is perfectly average, um, and the child doesn't do well when they're eating a certain food. There's no reason that that child has to eat that food. Now, if the child's really picky, and this is something that I deal with in the autistic population all the time because those kids are the pickiest of eaters, um, we get those kids to do a gluten-free, casein-free diet, and they actually survive and thrive and they do fine. So for a child who's, you know, a neurotypical child, meaning a child who doesn't have any developmental issues whatsoever and is thriving normally on a non-gluten diet, there's no reason not to continue that, especially if you add something into the diet, the kid doesn't do well, you take it out, they do better. It is kind of the age-old kind of joke that my grandfather used to tell me. He said, guy goes to the doctor and he says, every time I move like this, my head hurts. And the doctor says, <laughs> Stop doing that. well, then don't move <laughs> like that. And that's right. right. And so you know, once we get into some of the foods that are like really nutrient-dense and, like, my child doesn't eat certain vegetables or fruits or, or things that we think really have those nutrients that that is very necessary for growth, then we have a different issue. But it sounds like your child's definitely thriving and, you know, he's not picky to the point where he's not he's not growing. So that's right. um, that's something that I think there's, there really is something, too. Now, again, I'm... I'm yeah, I, 
I, hopefully if there's pediatricians listening, they're not thinking I'm going to pick it on them, but it's the questions that I get asked the most is that a lot of pediatricians will say, well, if your child doesn't have celiac disease, there's no reason to avoid gluten. And I would say um, 100% that is not true, that there are some children just like yours that will actually do better, but they don't have celiac disease. They just do better not on gluten. And, yeah. you know, how do we explain that? Who cares? You know, right. if you know what affects your child's health, then just avoid it and move on to other grains that your child could eat as long as they're whole grains and, and you know, healthy. Awesome. Got yep, that, bro? I agree. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling in, bro. Thanks. You bet. Love you, love. Love you. Bye. Right. All right. We got like three minutes real quick. Is there any possible way to answer the autism question that quickly? <laughs> Doc, take it away. Uh, You're so some, autism with some... heavy metals. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in the the research that we published in 2009, uh, we published three papers, uh, and it was all derived from uh, this data that we collected on children who uh, had autism. And here are the things that we had found was that uh, and again, you can find that on my website at drmatthewburrell.com, and uh, you can download, I believe, the full uh, the full articles there. So what we had discovered is that children with autism, when uh, compared to control children, have actually uh, higher levels of heavy metals in their system. Uh, that was discovered by doing a uh, a urine provocation challenge, which is just giving the child a small amount of a chelator medicine and then measuring the amount of metal in their urine. Uh, we found that autistic children had higher levels of, of metals in their urine. We found that once we chelated those children, that those children got better as a result. Their behavior got better, as well as certain health parameters also improved, uh, which is to say you know, some sort of more scientific things, things like platelets, which can be a measure of things like inflammation in the body, as well as levels of glutathione, both of those measurements normalized in our patients who had high toxic heavy metals and were treated with a chelator medicine. Nobody was hurt in the study, uh, and in fact, what we used was DMSA, which is an oral chelation medicine, typically used in the emergency room for lead uh, lead poisoning, but in our case we used it for any kind of heavy metal toxicity and we found that it was beneficial and extremely safe uh, for children who have heavy metal toxicity. And so the, your question might be, I don't know if that answers the question, but your question might be, is heavy metals fully responsible for autism um, and is... Uh, what causes, you know, if not, what causes autism? That's There's so many different factors, but what I'm going to surmise is that the amount of toxicity that we're encountering in today's world probably uh, sets children up for being uh, a lot more kind of sensitive to, um, to the environmental toxins that they're experiencing. A uh, toxic parent might uh, actually have some kind of kind of uh, immune abnormalities and might get passed on to the child. We see that um, that may lead also to a child just being more sensitive to any tiny amount of toxic metal that they might experience in their 
in their environment. But not all children with autism have heavy metal toxicity, and I've tested those children. Um, and, you know, some of those kids just aren't toxic. And in those cases, we supplement them with different vitamins that we know to be deficient in the autistic population as well as uh, change their diet around, typically to a gluten-free, casein-free diet, and they do exceptionally well on those sorts of treatments. So um, I know that probably wasn't three minutes, but uh, but that's, no, that's kind awesome. of that's autism awesome. in a very small nutshell. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's there's obviously a lot more to it and a lot more that, you know, parents can look into, but those are some really important um, aspects of looking at that condition. So it's really great. And I just love so much, you know, all the information you've shared on the show. It's really, really, really important. I think that the callers and the listeners probably got a ton of value out of it and being able to just, you know, bring health to their kids and keep them healthy and preventing things from happening. So I really, I really acknowledge you and I thank you so much for being on the show. And um, where can listeners learn more about you and, um, you know, what's, what's next for you? Um, what's next? I, I say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving a presentation to, um, on toxicity, environmental toxicity in children to, um, a company called Method Home Products, which I have no connection to. It's just that, uh, I've been asked by them to come and lecture to their company because they do a, um, a kind of, a, a natural home cleaning product that, uh, they want their, people to be educated on as far as what are the toxins in children's environment. I have a number of other speaking engagements. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a pediatric pre-conference at the AANP Association's uh, annual meeting this year, which I'll be speaking at, and um, also speaking at the Arizona Naturopathic Medical Association's uh, conference as the closing speaker. So I have a, a few things as far as talks coming up, and then... Um, this year, the Pediatric Association is actually doing a big push to, like I said before, um, finish the uh, specialization um, or the board certification exam to be a pediatric naturopathic specialist, uh, which will be the first of its kind in, in the naturopathic profession. So that's pretty exciting. It'll take a lot of work, but um, but it's finally we're finally getting to it after uh, you know all these years. So um, that's what's happening for the meantime. Very cool. Well, I thank you yeah. so much again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, looking forward to catching up, hopefully, at the at the uh, convention in Colorado, yeah, I, hope I believe. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, keep in touch, and we'll, uh, we'll see each other soon. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was great having you. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Okay, you too. Bye now. Thanks. All right, guys, that's the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm about to head off to a paleo potluck and get get my grub on and have a great rest of your evening all of you guys and we'll catch you next week's show i'll be interviewing dr jason and mira calton on good sorry rich food poor food how you can take your information to the grocery store and have healthy food and be able to really understand how to read those labels and not get not get gypped anymore <laughs> by those false claims so check out that show next week and we'll check you then have a great one bye Holiday your heart out at Old Navy. Today only, all hats, gloves, and scarves are 50% off. Plus, get 40% off your entire purchase today at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hats, gloves, and scarves valid 1120. 40% valid 1115 to 1120. Exclusions apply. See store for details. 
North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.